new on Curiosity Street. Louis B. Mayer, Jack Warner, William Fox. Hollywood was the city of dreams, but the beginnings were a nightmare. You will never work in this town again! It's Titans, the rise of Hollywood. And Merapi, one of the world's most active volcanoes. Can we better predict its next deadly eruption? A new expedition hunts for life-saving answers on exploring the volcano. Watch now on Curiosity Stream. Annual plans are $20, just $1.67 a month. Visit CuriosityStream.com. to my show on civil rights. My name is Barbara Bullen and I'm one of the radio hosts for the New Heights Show on Education and the New Heights Educational Group. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'm asking our listeners to consider becoming a sponsor. This show is pre-recorded. This show is based on the life of Frederick Douglass who wrote three autobiographies. I will continue with a second autobiography written by Frederick Douglass which is My Bondage and My Freedom, which each week I will read to you certain portions of each chapter. The e-book can be downloaded from www.guttenberg.org backslash files backslash 202 backslash 202 dash h backslash 202 dash h dot htm. Chapter 17, The Last Flogging. Sleep itself does not always come to the relief of the wearing body and the broken spirit, especially when past troubles only foreshadow coming disasters. The last hope had been extinguished. My master, who I did not venture to hope would protect me as a man, had even now refused to protect me as his property, and had cast me back covered with reproaches and bruises into the hands of a stranger to that mercy which was the soul of the religion he professed. May the reader never spend such a night as that allotted to me, previous to the morning which was to herald my return to the den of horrors from which I had made a temporary escape. I remained all night, sleep I did not, at St. Michael's, and in the morning, Saturday, I started off according to the order of Master Thomas, feeling that I had no friend on earth, and doubting if I had one in heaven. I reached Covey's about nine o'clock, and just as I stepped into the field, before I had reached the house, Covey, true to his snakish habits, darted out at me from a fence corner, in which he had secreted himself for the purpose of securing me. He was amply provided with a cowskin and a rope, and he evidently intended to tie me up and to wreak his vengeance on me to the fullest extent. I should have been an easy prey, had he succeeded in getting his hands upon me, for I had taken no refreshment since noon on Friday, and this, together with the pelting excitement and the loss of blood, had reduced my strength. 
I, however, darted back into the woods before the ferocious hound could get hold of me and buried myself in a thicket where he lost sight of me. The cornfield afforded me cover in getting to the woods, but for the tall corn, Kobe would have overtaken me and made me his captive. He seemed very much chagrined that he did not catch me and give, gave up the chase very reluctantly, for I could see his angry movements towards the house from which he had sallied on his foray. Well, now I am clear of Kobe and of his wrathful lash. For present, I am in the wood, buried in its sombre gloom and hushed in its solemn silence, hid from all human eyes, shut in with nature and nature's God, and absent from all human contrivances. Here was a good place to pray, to pray for help for deliverance, a prayer I had often made before. But how could I pray? Covey could pray. Captain All could pray. I would fain pray. But doubts, arising partly from my own neglect of the means of grace, and partly from the sham religion which everyone prevailed, cast in my mind a doubt upon all religion, and led me to the conviction that prayers were unavailing and delusive, prevented my embracing the opportunity as a religious one. Life in itself had almost become burdensome to me. All my outward relations were against me. I must stay here and starve. I was already hungry or go home to Covey's and have my flesh torn to pieces and my spirit humbled under the cruel lash of Covey. This was the painful alternative presented to me. The day was long and irksome. My physical condition was deplorable. I was weak. From the toils of the previous day and from the want of food and rest, and had been so little concerned about my appearance that I had not yet washed the blood from my garments, I was an object of horror, even to myself. Life in Baltimore, when most oppressive, was a paradise to this. What had I done? What had my parents done? That such a life as this should be mine. That day in the woods I would have exchanged my manhood for the brutehood of an ox. Chapter 18 New Relations and Duties My time of actual service to Mr. Edward Covey ended on Christmas Day, 1834. I gladly left the snakish Covey, although he was now as gentle as a lamb. My home for the year, 1835, was already secured. My next master was already selected. There was always more or less excitement about the matter of changing hands, but I had become somewhat reckless. I cared very little into whose hands I fell. I meant to fight my way. Despite of Covey too, the report got abroad that I was hard to whip, that I was guilty of kicking back, that through, that though generally a good-tempered negro, I sometimes got the devil in me. These sayings were rife in Talbot County, and they distinguished me among my servile brethren. Slaves generally will fight each other and die at each other's hands, but there are few who are not held in awe by a white man. Trained from the cradle up to think and feel that their masters are superior and invested with a sort of sacredness, there are few who can outgrow or rise above the control which that sentiment exercises. I had now got free from it, and the thing was known. One bad sheep will spoil the whole flock. Among the slaves, I was a bad sheep. I hated slavery. 
slaveholders and all pertaining to them, and I did not fail to inspire others with the same feeling, wherever and whenever opportunity was presented. This made me a marked lad among the slaves, and a suspected one among the slaveholders. A knowledge of my ability to read and write got pretty widely spread, which was very much against me. The days between Christmas Day and New Year's are allowed the slaves as holidays. During these days, all regular work was suspended, and there was nothing to do but to keep fires and look after the stock. This time was regarded as our own, by the grace of our masters, and we therefore used it, or abused it, as we pleased. Those who had families at a distance were now expected to visit them and to spend with them the entire week. The younger slaves or the unmarried ones were expected to see to the cattle and attend to incidental duties at home. The holidays were variously spent. The somber, thinking and industrious ones of our number would employ themselves in manufacturing corn brooms, mats, horse collars and baskets and some of these were very well made. Another class spent their time in hunting opossums, coons, rabbits, and other game, but the majority spent the holidays in sports, ball playing, wrestling, boxing, running foot races, dancing, and drinking whiskey, and this latter mode of spending the time was generally most agreeable to their masters. A slave who would work during the holidays was thought by his master undeserving of holidays, such as one had rejected the favor of his master. There was, in this simple act of continued work, an accusation against slaves, and a slave could not help thinking that if he made three dollars during the holidays, he might make three hundred during the year. Not to be drunk during the holidays was disgraceful, and he was esteemed a lazy and improvident man who could not afford to drink whiskey during Christmas. The fiddling, dancing, and jubilee beating was going on in all directions. This latter performance is strictly southern. It supplies the place of a violin or of other musical instruments, and is played so easily that almost every farm has its juba beater. The performer improvises as he beats and sings his merry songs, so ordering the words as to have them fall pat with the movement of his hands. Among a mass of nonsense and wild frolic, once in a while, a sharp hit is given to the meanness of slaveholders. Take the following for an example. We raise de wheat, they give us de corn. We bake de bread, they give us de crust. We sift de meal, they give us de hus. We peel de meat, they give us de skin. And that's the way they takes us in, we skim the pot, they give us the liquor, and say that's good enough for nigger, walk over, walk over, tom butter and de fat, poor nigger you can't get over that, walk over. This is not a bad summary of the palpable, injusted and fraud of slavery giving, as it does, to the lazy and idle. The comforts which God designed should be given solely to the honest laborer, but to the holidays. Judging from my own observation and experience, I believe these holidays to be among the most effective means in the hands of slaveholders of keeping down the spirit of insurrection among the slaves.
right now. You might be struggling through your classes or even failing them. You might be worried that you may not finish high school. There might have even been a thought that you may not be smart enough. Well, the New Heights Educational Group begs to differ. We not only think you are smart enough, but with our help, you will complete your high school diploma. The New Heights Educational Group strives to improve your academic success through its tutoring services. To learn more, please visit newheightseducation.org and contact us. New Heights Educational Group, educational resources to help reach your goals. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying the New Heights show on education and want to support or donate to our organization, please visit www.newheightseducation.org. And while you're there, check out our online store, Welcome back to the New Heights Show on Education. My name is Barbara Bullen, and I'm the radio host for this show. This show is pre-recorded and focuses on the history of civil rights. A recap of the first segment of the show on Frederick Douglass will continue. Chapter 19. The Runaway Plot. I am now at the beginning of the year 1836, a time favorable for serious thoughts. The mind naturally occupies itself with the mysteries of life in all its phases, the ideal, the real, and the actual. Sober people look both ways at the beginning of the year, surveying the errors of the past and providing against possible errors of the future. I too was thus exercised. I had little pleasure in retrospect and the prospect was not very brilliant. Notwithstanding, thought I, the many resolutions and prayers I have made in behalf of freedom. I am, this first day of the year, 1836, still a slave, still wandering in the depths of spirit-devouring thraldom. My faculties and powers of body and soul are not my own, but are the property of a fellow mortal, in no sense superior to me, except that he has the physical power to compel me to be owned and controlled by him. By the combined physical force of the community, I am his slave, a slave for life. With thoughts like these, I was perplexed and chafed. They rendered me gloomy and disconsolate. The anguish of my mind may not be written. At the close of the year, 1835, Mr. Freeland, my temporary master, had brought me of Captain Thomas Auld for the year 1836. His promptness in securing my services would have been flattering to my vanity had I been ambitious to win the reputation of being a valuable slave. Even as it was, I felt a slight degree of complacency at the circumstance. It showed him he, it showed he was as well pleased with me as a slave as I was with him as a master. I have already intimated my regard for Mr. Freeland, and I may say here, in addressing Northern readers, where is no selfish motive for speaking in praise of a slaveholder, that Mr. Freeland was a man of many excellent qualities and to me quite preferable to any master I ever had. But the kindness of the slave master only gilds the chain of slavery and detracts nothing from its weight of power. 
the thought that men are made for other and better uses than slavery, thrives best under the gentle treatment of a kind master. But the grim visage of slavery can assume no smiles, which can fascinate the partially enlightened slave into a forgetfulness of his bondage, nor of the desirableness of liberty. I was not through the first month of this my second year with a kind and gentlemanly Mr. Freeland, before I was earnestly considering and advising plans for gaining that freedom, which when I was but a mere child, I had ascertained to be the natural and inborn right of every member of the human family. The desire for this freedom had been had been benumbed, while I was under the brutalizing dominion of Covey, and it had been postponed and rendered inoperative by my truly pleasant Sunday school engagements with my friends during the year 1835 at Mr. Freeland's. It had, however, never entirely subsided. I hated slavery, always, and the desire for freedom only needed a favorable breeze to fan it into a blaze at any moment. The thought of all you being a creature to the present and the past troubled me, and I longed to have a future, a future with hope in it. To be shut up entirely to the past and present is abhorrent to the human mind. It is to the soul, whose life and happiness is unceasing progress, what the prison is to the body, a blight and mildew, a hell of horrors. The dawning of this another year awakened me from my temporary slumber, aroused into life my latent, but long-cherished aspirations for freedom. I was now not only ashamed to be contented in slavery, but ashamed to seem to be contented, and in my present favourable condition under the mild rule of Mr. F., I am not sure that some kind reader will not condemn me for being over-ambitious and greatly wanting in proper humility when I say the truth that I now drove from me all thoughts of making the best of my lot and welcomed only such thoughts as it led me away from the house of bondage. The intense desires now felt to be free, quickened to my present favourable circumstances, brought me to the determination to act, as well as to think and speak. According to the, accordingly, at the beginning of this year, 1836, I took upon me a solemn vow that the year which had now dawned upon me should not close without witnessing an earnest attempt on my part to gain my liberty. This vow only bound me to make my escape individually, but the year spent with Mr. Freeland had attached me as with hooks of steel to my brother slaves. The most affectionate and confiding friendship existed between us, and I felt it my duty to give them an opportunity to share in my virtuous determination by frankly disclosing to them my plans and purposes. Towards Henry and John Harris, I felt a friendship as strong as one man can feel for another, for I could have died with and for them. To them, therefore, with a suitable degree of caution, I began to disclose my sentiments and plans, sounding them, while on the subject of running away, provided a good chance should offer. I scarcely need tell the reader that I did my very best to imbue the minds of my dear friends with my own views and feelings, thoroughly awakened now, and with a definite vow upon me, all my little reading which had any bearing on the subject of human rights was rendered available in my communications with my friends. 
That to me, gem of a book, the Colombian orator, orator with his eloquent orations and spicy dialogues denouncing oppression and slavery, telling of what had been dared, done and suffered by men to obtain the inestimable boom of liberty, was still fresh in my memory and rolled into the ranks of my speech with the aptitude of well-trained soldiers going through the drill. The fact is I here began my public speaking I can best with Henry and John the subject of slavery and dashed against it the condemning brand of God's eternal justice which at every hour violates. My fellow servants were neither indifferent, dull nor inapt. Our feelings were more alike than our opinions. All, however, were ready to act when a feasible plan should be, should be proposed Show us how the thing is to be done, they said, and all is clear. Chapter 20, Apprenticeship Life Well, dear reader, I am not, as you may have already inferred, a loser by the general upstir described in the foregoing chapter. The little domestic revolution, notwithstanding the sudden snub it got by the treachery of somebody, I dare not say or think who, did not, after all, end so disastrously as when in the iron cage at Easton I conceived it would. The prospect from that point did look about as dark as any that ever cast its gloom over the vision of the anxious outlook in human spirit. All is well that ends well. My affectionate comrades Henry and John Harris are still with Mr. William Freeland. Charles Roberts and Henry Bailey are safe at their homes. I have not therefore anything to regret on their account. Their masters have mercifully forgiven them, probably on the ground, suggesting in the spirited little speech of Mrs. Freeland, made to me just before leaving for the jail, namely that they had been allured into the wicked scheme of making their escape by me, and that, but for me, they would never have dreamed of a thing so shocking. My friends had nothing to regret, either, for while they were watched more closely on account of what had happened, they were, doubtless, treated more kindly than before and got new assurances that they would be legally emancipated some day, provided their behavior should make them deserve him from that time forward. Not a blow, as I learned, was struck any one of them. As for Master William Freeland, good, unsuspecting soul, he did not believe that we were intending to run away at all. Having given, as he thought, no occasion to his boys to leave him, he could not think it probable that they had entertained a design so grievous. This, however, was not the view taken of the matter by Mars Billy, as we used to call the soft-spoken but crafty and resolute Mr. William Hamilton. He had no doubt that the crime had been meditated, and regarding me as the instigator of it, he frankly told, Master Thomas that he must remove me from the neighborhood, or he would shoot me down. He would not have one so dangerous as Frederick tampering with his slaves. William Hamilton was not a man whose threat might be safely disregarded. I have no doubt that he would have proved as good as his word, had the warning given not been promptly taken. He was furious at the thought of such a piece of high-handed theft, as we were about to perpetrate the stealing of our own bodies and souls. The feasibility of the plan, too, could the first steps have been taken, was marvellously plain. Besides, 
This was a new idea, this use of the bay. Slaves escaping until now had taken to the woods. They had never dreamed of profaning and, and abusing the waters of the noble Chesapeake. By making them the highway from slavery to freedom, here was a broad road of destruction to slavery, which before had been looked upon as a wall of security by slaveholders. But Master Billy could not get Mr. Freeland to see matters precisely as he did, nor could he get Master Thomas so excited as he was himself. The latter, I must say to his credit, showed, most, showed much humane feeling in his part of the transaction and atoned for much that had been harsh, cruel, and unreasonable in his former treatment of me and others. His clemency was quite unusual, and unlooked for cousin Tom, told me that while I was in jail, Master Thomas was very unhappy, and that the night before his going up to release me, he had walked the floor nearly all night, evincing great distress, that very tempting offers had been made to him by the Negro traders, but he had rejected them all, saying that money could not tempt him to sell me to the far south. All this I can easily believe, for he seemed quite reluctant to send me away at all. He told me that he only consented to do so because of the very strong prejudice against me in the neighborhood, and that he feared for my safety if I remained there. This comes to the conclusion of the show. Next week's show will continue on the autobiography of Frederick Douglass, My Bondage and My Freedom. Thank you for listening. You can reach me by email, barbarab at newheightseducation.org. Be sure to join me every Sunday at radio.newheightseducation.org, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, as I discuss the history of civil rights. Also join Pamela Clark's pre-recorded shows, which airs Wednesday by 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Civil rights is our right. Have a great week. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Don't forget to rate us and follow us on your podcast player. Check out our show page, radio.newheightseducation.org, for monthly announcements and other happenings. Imagine your new bathroom, a sparkling new tub, a modern shower conversion, a seamless new wall, all done in as little as a day. Introducing Bathfitter. Join over 2 million customers delighted with our one-of-a-kind remodeling process. No demolition, no mess. Guaranteed for life. Installed in as little as a day. Book a free in-home consultation at bathfitterpodcasts.com and get our best offer of the year right now. Bathfitter, 35 years of better bath remodels.